You are listening to us, Unscripted Stories, brought to you by Northwestern University's Multicultural Student Affairs. We are recording at the traditional homelands of the people of the Council of Three Fires, the Ojibwe, Potawatomi, and Adawa, as well as the Menominee, Miami, and Ho-Chunk Nations. Welcome to another episode of Us, Unscripted Stories. My name is Alicia Sawyer, and I'm a graduate assistant with Multicultural Student Affairs at Northwestern University. So I'm excited to introduce our first guest, Isabel Liu. Isabel, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, My name is Isabel. I use she, her pronouns. I'm currently a third year at Northwestern studying Asian American studies. Thank you so much, Isabel, for joining us today. So May is Asian Pacific Islander Desi American Heritage Month. And this month, Unscripted Stories is centering APIDA voices to honor the vibrancy, diversity, and resilience of the community, even as we grapple with ongoing injustice in 2021. Every story is precious, and we're celebrating and uplifting the narratives of Northwestern's APIDA student community and the dynamic moments that have shaped their identities and sense of self. We hope their stories can inspire reflection and encourage you to honor your own narratives. So I'm excited to hear Isabel's story today. So Isabel, you have the floor. All right. For some people, it's clowns, the dark or even zoomed in photos of small clustered holes. But for me, it's hair. For the past three years of my life, 2020 included, my biggest and most embarrassing fear has been my natural black hair. Four years ago, when I was a senior in high school, I made the expensive and high-maintenance decision to dye my hair platinum blonde. As a Chinese-American femme with pitch black hair, this particular choice earned me 14 plus hours in a salon chair and a stinging scalp. But when my hairdresser unfurled the foil roosting on top of my head, rinsed out the dye, and unveiled my new Reese Witherspoon-esque hair, I knew immediately that I'd do it again at the drop of a hat. I looked different, but better different, I thought, I felt like a glowing after picture from a fraudulent and tacky infomercial. And just as my hair had lightened, the world around me seemed brighter and more welcoming. For the first time in my entire life, I heard rumors that such and such boys found me attractive and they were all white. Once a white boy in my year who was accused of sexual assault and was later expelled told one of my friends that he thought I was attractive and I was immensely flattered. At the time, I didn't know how to name my need to be desired by white people. I didn't know how to acknowledge the harm that boy caused without seeing prison as the only answer. I didn't know that the giddy excitement I felt was just my own self-hatred, smothered under bleach and purple shampoo. That is, until COVID-19 hit. Prior to the hell that was 2020, I'd religiously touch up my roots every three months at a hair salon and splurge on overpriced purple shampoo. When other Asian Americans commented on the impressive non-fakeness of my artificially colored hair, I'd administer dye, shampoo, and hair care regimens like gospel. But with the deadly virus spreading across the country and the health of my family and marginalized communities on the line, it just wasn't worth it. I told myself to wait it out that maybe this whole coronavirus business would just blow over in a couple months as long as people wore masks and stayed inside. You probably don't need me to tell you that I was wrong, but I'll say it anyways. I was so tragically wrong. April came, then May, then October, and suddenly there was a patch of black hair growing slowly but steadily like a bacteria colony on top of my head. I asked my then partner if I should dye my hair back to black just to be one step ahead of the inevitable. But babe, he said, you look so much better blonde. 
And all of a sudden I was in high school again, except this time I wasn't blonde or getting attention from a bunch of white boys. I was my old black haired self chasing after A's and fad diets because I needed some way, anyway, to get some validation. Maybe if I had a higher GPA or a lower weight, someone would love me. Since high school, I found a fantastic and witty therapist who has helped me work through so much of my personal and societal trauma. And yet more than four years later, that same voice that believed a GPA or a number on a scale determined whether I was deserving of love was still there. It had simply shapeshifted into my fear of not being blonde. After dyeing my hair blonde and graduating from high school, I had my first real relationship. And unsurprisingly, it was with the white boy. I chose to ignore the fact that his past relationships had all been with Asian people, the same way I chose to ignore his underhanded compliments. I like that you're not like the other Asians, he'd say. They only hang out with each other. And then he'd compare me to an anime character in the same breath. He was fetishizing me. And to make matters worse, I didn't even like him. And yet I couldn't bring myself to break up with him. Not because I was scared or even considerate, but because he was a living, breathing vessel of what I'd been chasing, validation, from a white man at that. I wanted someone to give me a stamp of approval, approval to finally prove that I was good enough, smart enough, pretty enough. And now that I had it, why would I give it away? Thankfully, he had a lot of other flaws in addition to his racism, and I broke up with him on those terms. After him, I swore off white boys. I promised myself that I would never let myself be objectified by a romantic partner ever again. Once again, you don't need me to tell you this, but I was wrong, again. My second partner was not white. He didn't compare me to an anime character or the other Asians, but he did have a notable interest in white blonde women. Not the I'm cheating on you type of interest, but the celebrity crush or ideal type interest. He and I were both involved in Greek life at the time, and he once showed me the Greek rank scoring of my ex-sorority as a compliment. Even though the comment said our PC was, quote, one of the most attractive, unquote, I was too busy thinking about how we were one of the most white. Then came March 2020 and the countrywide lockdowns. I flew back home, dropped my sorority, and spent a solid five minutes every morning glaring at my roots in the mirror. I asked my partner every week, half-jokingly, if I should dye my hair black, and each time the answer was the same. You look better blonde. I would have been a lot more upset if a part of me didn't agree with him. That same part wondered if he'd break up with me if I dyed my hair black, or if he'd say, thank God I left, if I dyed my hair black post-breakup. He may not have been white, but he was a vessel of affirmation all the same. He proved that I was enough to someone, and if being enough meant being blonde forever, then I'd do it. Thankfully, like my first partner, there were a number of other pressing issues besides my hair that pushed me to part ways with him. And yet it took another five months after a breakup for me to finally bite the bullet and dye my hair black with a box of off-brand hair dye. My hair care routine is a lot cheaper and shorter nowadays, but I'd be lying if I said I don't miss my blonde hair. It felt like a superpower or maybe a lucky charm that made me feel like I was enough. And on my worst days, I can't help but crave that bleach flavored magic. There is no end or moral to the story. The thing is, I am an Asian American studies major who has had the privilege to learn from peers and professors who never hesitate to challenge me. I have been studying things like critical race theory, internalized white supremacy, and other remnants of colonialism for the past three years. And yet, despite all the fancy literature I've read, it took me a worldwide pandemic to pinpoint a glaring piece of internalized racism that I've been living with for years. 
understanding oppression doesn't free you from it. But as I've learned this past year, understanding my own internalized racism has at least helped me find a path towards unlearning that self-hatred and giving myself the love I deserve. So to all of you out there, regardless of whether you know fancy words like epistemology or not, I want you to know that it's okay even if there are parts of your marginalized identities that you struggle to love, regardless of whether you have the vocabulary to name it or not. That's all. <laughs> Thank that was first of all that was awesome. Thank you. So yeah, um thank you so much for telling your story Isabel. I think there's so many aspects of your story that I feel like resonate a lot with um with a lot of Asian Americans. I think this idea of internalized racism and then even the aspect that you were talking about with fetishization. So mm-hmm. I think that I'm curious to know, like, how was it for you revisiting these, um, both of these with internalized racism and this idea of fetishization? How was it for you to kind of go through that story and name those two things? Yeah, well, I think, I think maybe, I think like writing the story was a lot easier after like coming to the realization myself. And I think that that process was a lot harder for me because like as I said in my story like I've been studying Asian American studies for like three years now and you know fetishization and orientalism are things that we talk about pretty early on in, in the program and yet like I kind of just ign- I you know I kind of lived with this cognitive dissonance that like it was okay for me to want to stay blonde and you know still study like my you know and still be in my field you know so I guess like to answer your question about what it was like to write this out it felt kind of like I was getting closure you know like I was kind of accepting that this is just a struggle I had and that like even if I have the vocabulary to name it it doesn't mean that it was any less hard for me or that like I'm you know quote cured unquote you know what I mean Mm -hmm. yeah I think that I feel like a part of the healing comes from even just processing it, whether it be through talking about it or writing about it. I think writing about it, like, is, I mean, it's such a good way to just get it out of your head. Um, So yeah, I think that definitely, that definitely resonates with me. Um, So yeah, thank you again for sharing, sharing all of that. And I wanted to know for you, why do you think it's so important for marginalized communities to tell their own stories and their own voices? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, there are a lot of important reasons, but I think for me, I, I'm i just thinking about how to care for our people right now. And, you know, like, in, in all honesty, when I was thinking about writing this interview, I was kind of embarrassed because I was like, oh my gosh, like everyone else is talking about, you know, like protesting against problematic events or, or like, you know, like on the ground activism, right? And I'm like talking about my hair. Um, But I think it's really, it's really healing to, to like hear that someone has a similar experience to you. And so when I was like processing this idea with my roommate, um, who's also in the APETA community, she was like, honestly, like, even though she didn't have blonde hair, for example, she said like, she catches herself sometimes, like prioritizing or like preferring her Eurocentric features. And so I guess the reason why I feel like sharing stories specifically like mine 
Um, the reason why I wanted to share the story and why I feel like sharing stories in marginalized communities is so important is just for, uh, for like actual affirmation, right? To know that you're in community with people. Cause I think naming things like internalized racism and like giving examples of what that's like is really just a way for like listeners to, to be like, wow, like someone else is kind of feeling the same thing and I'm not alone in this and I'm not crazy for feeling this way. Right. I think I love that you said that because I think that it just when you hear someone else's story that you relate to it it forms this this automatic sense of solidarity that I think is really important for people to I mean especially for people of marginalized communities and just that feeling so often of like especially when they're in white dominated spaces that feeling of being alone or that you're different or you're othered um so yeah I definitely I love that aspect of what you said about just finding people finding stories that they can relate to people finding stories that resonate with them as well so just they can feel less othered less alone in their experiences thank you for listening to us unscripted stories and for celebrating apita heritage month with msa Make sure to check out our other Epita Heritage Month episodes and to also subscribe to our podcast. Thank you for listening to us, Unscripted Stories. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Support for this podcast is provided by Joe Scaletti, Emma Salam, Saeed Rezko, Sydney Hastings, and Jeanette Rojas. With support from Alicia Solier, Isabel St. Arnold, Aaron Golding, and Linda Luck. Subscribe to hear more from us.